will join with me in Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke 15, we will be looking at verses 1 through 10. The title of our sermon is The Rejoicing of Heaven. Our key words for our worshipers in training are sheep, coin, and lost. Now, all of us can probably think of something in our lives that we have lost before. Perhaps even this morning, you had to run around the house tearing everything upside down because you couldn't find your keys. Or maybe you had to go rifling through the stacks of laundry to find the other pair to your socks. We lose things all the time. Sometimes it's something as simple as leftovers from last month's meal that got pushed to the back of the refrigerator. Or something more significant, maybe your wedding ring or your birth certificate. Depending on what it is, we may not be all that concerned about it. Some things we just kind of shrug our shoulders about and say, oh well. Other things will cause the entire family to stop what they're doing so that they can become the search party. I remember as a kid, one of the things that caused me to push pause on Super Mario Brothers the most often was when my dad was getting ready to leave the house. Almost every time we had to look for his keys and his wallet. He couldn't keep track of it. And those things are important and and we don't want to lose any of them. But even more important, have you ever lost your child? You ever had that terrible, horrific experience of being in a busy store or on a busy street and and turning around to grab your child's hand and they're gone? Where did they go? Did someone take them? Did they walk off on their own? Maybe they're just hiding in a clothes rack. Now, I'm convinced some of you don't have that kind of fear because I've stood next to your child while we've watched you drive off the parking lot of the church. It's okay. I reassure them. I love them. <laughs> but it's a frightening experience. It's, it's heartbreaking. It is, it is difficult. It's panic-producing, right? We instantly feel helpless. We feel frantic at the same time. And the urgency with which we begin to pursue that which is lost is heightened immensely. We look everywhere. We look through everything, sometimes two or three times because we might have missed it. When the text we're going to look at this morning, Jesus uses this common human experience that all of us are familiar with to once again shut the mouths of the Pharisees. They're condemning and and falsely judging the actions of Jesus. And he's going to provide us with two illustrations that end up giving us insight into the work of God in salvation. That we might rejoice in our own salvation. And that we might rejoice with all of the angels in heaven in the salvation of even one lost sinner. Let's begin in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
So chapter 15 opens with what has become a rather familiar scene at this point in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is teaching and preaching to hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who are following him and are seeking to hear what he has to say. And for one reason or another, the Pharisees and the scribes, in all of their pride, in all of their self-righteousness, hate what they see. This time we see it's for a reason we've seen before. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now let's not forget, these people that Jesus was interacting with, they surely were a people in great need of repentance. A people who were completely consumed by the desires of the flesh, all the trappings of the world. There's no question about their sinfulness. They were a scandalous bunch of people. Tax collectors especially were among the most universally hated, and I'm not sure that that's changed much in our day, has it? The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero insulted one of his opponents, and he said that this man must have thought of himself to be a tax gatherer. Quote, since you most thievishly ransacked every man's house, the warehouses and the ships, entangled men engaged in business with the most unjust decrees, terrified the merchants as they landed, and delayed their embarkation. John Chrysostom once preached, the tax gatherer is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, of fallacious greed. So... We might say some of the same things, but truth be told, tax collectors have never had a good reputation throughout the history of the world. In Jewish culture, the tax collectors were completely shunned because they were essentially Jewish people who had sold out to the Roman government. And in doing so, they were preying on fellow Jews to make unjust money for the Roman Empire. To the Jews, if you wanted to insult someone... At the most grievous level, if you wanted to be sure that you were going to start a fight, you did so by calling them a tax collector. They were hated in every way. Synagogues would not receive their offerings. Their testimony was rejected in Jewish courts. They were, to the Jews, even worse than the Samaritan Gentiles. So along with the sinners that Luke identifies, those were the people not living in accordance with the strict guidelines of the establishment. Here we have a people coming to Jesus. Luke says here that they were drawing near to him as he taught, as he preached all throughout the streets. And the Pharisees looked at them with disdain. He, they had great disgust for what they saw. And since Jesus received them, and since he didn't send them away or remove himself from their presence, they had a great disdain for him as well. But Jesus, as we will see in the text this morning, had a great concern for the tax collectors, for the sinners. You see, Jesus' great concern wasn't about whether or not they were clean or moral or righteous externally. They weren't. Very clearly, they weren't. There's no question about it. But Jesus was concerned about the condition of their souls. Now, let me ask us, are there certain people groups or people uh, of different types of people that when you hear about, that our instant reaction is to push away? 
to say, I don't have anything to do with them. I don't associate with that kind of person. I don't go near that group of people. Many evangelicals seem to think on some level that sin is a contagious disease. And if we get a little bit too close to it, we might catch it. And so we're content to just allow those people to wander around in the darkness. Maybe someone else will invite them to church so that they can hear the gospel. Although, if I'm honest, I hope it's not my church. I'm sure someone else will take the time to befriend them, but it won't be me, it won't be my children, it won't be any of us because those people are sinful. I'm not talking about giving them access to your bank account or loaning them your car or having them babysit your toddler. But are we blind to our own tendencies to be like the Pharisees when they condemn Jesus? How do you respond when you encounter someone who's homeless on the streets? What's your reaction if you find out someone is engaged in a homosexual lifestyle or addicted to pornography? What goes through your mind when you see someone who looks and dresses very differently than yourself? The Pharisees were not incorrect when they said of Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the point. Now the question is, can the same thing be said of Ephesus church? We can identify that people are in sin, that people live lifestyles completely consumed with themselves and live for nothing other than their next experience, their next high, their next dollar. But are we not self-righteous and hypocritical if we don't pause in the midst of all of it and say, that was me? Before God saved me, before He gave me new life in Him, that was me. It was all God's doing. It is all by God's grace. I have nothing to offer, and I was just like that person. So should we not give them the time of day? You know, as Christians, we should have a few uncomfortable friendships. We need to have people that we will invite to church, we will serve selflessly, that God may be glorified through us. They're hard, they are uncomfortable friendships, but they are good and they are necessary. We see it with Jesus. He he thought that these kinds of encounters were necessary. He thought these kinds of friendships were important. Think about it. In Luke 19, he receives Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a Roman collaborator. And in doing so, he offended everybody. In Luke chapter 7, remember Jesus let the the prostitute woman weep over him and wash his feet with her tears and her hair. And he, he offends them. Why? Well, because she's a sinner. She's a sexual outcast. In John chapter 4, he even offends his own disciples because he talks with the Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were products of intermarriage between the Jews and the Canaanites. And so the Samaritan was a racial outcast. But Jesus touched lepers. He embraced the poor. All who were unclean came to him. And he showed them great love and compassion. 
But the Pharisees, and perhaps some of us, would look at the works of Jesus and say, this man is soft on sin. He, he welcomes people who God would never welcome. This man particularly seems to always be fraternizing with people who never come to our place of worship. They never do. So he must be encouraging them. He's soft on sin. But Jesus is challenging that thinking in a very big way. The chapter of Luke 15 contains three important parables. The two that we're focusing on this morning and then one we will look at next week. They're undoubtedly three of the most famous parables in all the Bible. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. But we need to identify something here as we get into these. We have to see in this chapter that these three parables are not just about the lost. Just as much as they are about the lost, they are also about the Pharisees. What we see Jesus going after is that the Pharisees were so deeply entrenched in their self-righteousness that they didn't understand any other way of thinking. But we are all innately wired to think in the very same way that the Pharisees thought. Consider this. We could ask someone who's a super southern conservative and someone else who's a San Francisco liberal the same exact question and we'll get two very different answers. But we will see in the end that they are working from the very same paradigm. So, for example, if we ask these two individuals, what should we do as a country in order to make the world a better place to live? I'm certain that while their answers will be completely different, their basic assumption will be the very same as the Pharisees, and it's this. There are good guys, and there are bad guys. And the problem with the world is the bad guys. If only there were more people in the world like whom? Like me. The way I'm living. And if so, the world would be a better place. Now that's a moralistic paradigm. That's not a gospel paradigm. It goes so deep that all of our liberal and conservative friends are in the same boat. People inside the church and outside the church are in it. And because of it, we have a difficult time hearing what Jesus is actually saying. And most won't hear it at all. That's why Jesus so often says what we saw last week, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. You see, this sounds like nonsense to most people because we're not saying the main problem out there in the world is bad people. We know that's right because we're right there with them. We're saying at the heart of the problem is our supposed goodness. A Bible teacher, John Gerstner, once said, Really, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins. It's your damnable good works. Brothers and sisters, let me give us a significant challenge this morning. What the Pharisees couldn't understand was why it was that the sinners and tax collectors were wanting to have their ear to what Jesus was saying. 
These weren't people who were in the synagogues each week. They weren't people who were keeping the feast days. They were people who were openly and happily sinning along the way each and every day. And the Pharisees couldn't figure out why they continued to follow Jesus. They were angry that people wanted to hear from him and not from them. And I would suggest that if we look at the overall picture of what's going on throughout the Gospel of Luke between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's that among other things they have great jealousy over the fact that Jesus is drawing crowds and they aren't. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we the kind of people, are we the kind of church that sinners on the whole want nothing at all to do with? Now listen, I understand that sinful, worldly people will reject the truth. They will hate the gospel. They won't want to hear a proclamation of the truth. I understand all of those things, and all of them are true. However, are sinners being saved? Our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our children, are we seeing conversions? If not, could it possibly be that we are much closer to the Pharisees than we are to Jesus. Now let's look at what Jesus says in these parables about the lost and about the Pharisees. Let's look at verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus identifies a few different things for us here in this parable. The first thing to take note of is that Jesus has a much more radical view of what sin is than we often do. Look at this lost sheep. What was he doing? You see, the sheep wasn't out for a walk because he thought he needed more exercise. The lost sheep is going out on his own to find his own food, going his own way because he doesn't think he needs what the shepherd is providing. He thinks he knows what he wants in life and he's going after it. So you see, we're prone to think that sin is just about breaking the rules. But Jesus is showing that at the heart, that the essence of sin is that we are running and seeking to escape from God altogether. It's not about keeping and breaking rules primarily. It's about whether or not we are walking with God. It's about following Jesus or not following Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 3, No one seeks for God. No one. At the heart of all of this is what the prophet Isaiah says of every last one of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. This is the essence of sin. Turning to our own way and away from God's. 
And we all have a natural inclination to want to be our own authority, our own law, our own Lord, our own Savior. But what that means is breaking the rules is one way to escape God. But keeping them is another. There's a great southern novelist many of you are probably familiar with. Her name is Flannery O'Connor. She wrote a novel called Wise Blood, in which one of her main characters' names was Hayes Motts. And he's described in this way. There was already a deep black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. So insightful. You know, the hardest people in the world to talk to about the gospel aren't the people that I grew up. uh, People who say, I don't like the idea of morality being defined. I don't like God. I'm going to break the Ten Commandments and I want to do that. It's far easier to talk to those people about the things of God. I get them. I understand them. Because you and I were there once whether we want to admit it or not. But it's the people like Hayes Mott's. There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him. The way of escape from God is wordless. You don't articulate it yourself. You see, he knew if I'm a good person, I don't need a savior. I don't need to do everything for God. I have my rights And now I have leverage over God. He has to give me this. He has to give me that. He owes me something now. And every time we talk with someone who assumes that they're a good person, they're assuming they hold sway over God. You see, you can as much escape God through morality and escape God through religion as you can escape God through immorality and escape Him through irreligion. The difference is, it's wordless when you do it through religion. It's wordless to you and to others. It's hidden. It's more pernicious. It's pharisaical because it's all on the outside. It doesn't take a word. But Jesus is redefining sin for us here. He shows us that sin is running away from God. But look also at what the shepherd does. He has a hundred sheep, and 99 of them are in the open field with him, and he leaves all 99. He goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us how long. It could have been hours. It could have been days. But what we see is the great love and concern and willingness to go after the one who is lost, to hunt him down, to rescue him, and to bring him to safety. Remember, we thought about earlier, what do you do when you're in Walmart and you turn around and your kid isn't there anymore? You do everything you can to hunt them down, to to rescue them, to bring them to safety. That's what the shepherd does. That's what Jesus does. He leaves the 99 sheep in the field. He goes after the one who is running away from him. The one who wants nothing to do with him. The one who thinks he can do it all on his own. 
And then he finds it, he picks it up, he lays it across his shoulders, and he brings it back to the field. And in all of his joy, he calls together all of his friends and neighbors that they can rejoice with him. It's a tremendous, beautiful picture. It's the persistence and the love with which God goes after and He seeks and He saves sinners like you and me. Do you see the shepherd is revealing the heart of Jesus who seeks to save the lost, His compassion for lost souls. This is the Lord of the universe. He came seeking as a suffering Savior. And He's come with the persistent will not be denied love of the Holy Spirit. And if we go up to the heavens, He is there. If we sleep in the deep, He is there. If we fly to the sun, He is there. We find Him everywhere because He has found us. Jesus tells us here, you would not be searching for Me had I not already found you. We long for Him because He draws near to us. The poet Francis Thompson wrote about the Holy Spirit and called Him the Hound of Heaven. He wrote this, I fled Him down the nights and down the days. I fled Him down the arches of the years. I fled Him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him, and under running laughter, up-vistaed hopes I sped, and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after. This is every man and every woman's experience who comes to Jesus Christ. He knows where we are. He knows his sheep by name. But listen to the last line of this poem. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. He finds us through crumbling dreams. You know, our dreams in life all fall apart in one of two ways. One is by failing to achieve them. All the hopes in marriage that we had or the successes that we pursued, or the perfect home that we wanted. But the other is more pernicious, and that is our dreams fall apart when we achieve them and still find a nagging emptiness inside. The effect is exactly the same, a feeling of incompleteness, an underlying sense of loss and alienation. And that is when there comes a desire to find God and to be found by God. Friend, are you lost? Are you seeking to fulfill your dreams and to find that you continue to come up short? Do you continue with a nagging emptiness in life day by day by day? Perhaps you've done all that you've wanted. You've achieved all that you've sought to do in life. And in the end, you've found, I'm still missing something. I'm still not where I want to be in life. Are you here this morning because you're seeking God? Well, let me tell you. If you're here seeking God, it's because He's seeking you. 
Friends, it's not an accident that any of us are here this morning. Some of you are running from God willingly and joyfully. Others of you are running from God by following all the rules. Some of you feel broken and alone. Others of you have done all that you've wanted in life and you still feel completely empty. I want to commend the Savior Jesus Christ to you. He's the good shepherd. He seeks and finds his sheep. He hunts them down and he carries them home. And if you're here because you're looking for God, you want to know God, it's because He's already on the prowl. He's coming for you. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Repent of your rebellion. Repent of your goodness. And turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Put all of your hope and all of your assurance and all of your rest in Jesus alone. He's enough. He's he's faithful. He is compassionate. He will fulfill your greatest longing. He will fill your emptiness. He rejoices at your repentance. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus rejoiced when we put our trust in Him. And not only did the shepherd rejoice, but He says there is great joy in heaven. In verse 10, he will tell us that there is great joy before all of the angels of God when one sinner repents. Friend, will you repent and turn to Jesus today? Very quickly, before we press on into the next parable, I want to point out one more thing. Look at how Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is drawing a dichotomy here between a sinner who repents and 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. But what does he mean by this? we ought not assume that Jesus is commending those 99. He's not giving them accolades or saying that they're okay in reality. He's talking about the likes of the Pharisees. He's talking about the self-righteous bunch who think they have it all together. And so he says, why would they need to repent? Surely they're righteous already. But we know better than that, don't we? Paul tells us in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. You see, Jesus puts it all back on the Pharisees and he tells them, these people you are condemning when they repent, when they put their trust in me and follow me, there is much rejoicing. But for you, there is none because you have a self-righteousness that keeps you from depending on me. You are content to love and depend on yourself. And what about us? Do we rejoice in the repentance of sinners? Or do we self-righteously scoff because we think we have no need for repentance? And Jesus goes on in the second parable beginning in verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin 
does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The second thing we see from Jesus is that he sees those that he seeks as a great treasure. Why did the woman tear her house upside down to find that silver coin? Because it was valuable. It was an entire day's wage and she lost it. Why do we not tear our houses apart looking for a dime or a quarter? Because it's not all that valuable. But Jesus presents himself as one who searches, as one who seeks, as one who tirelessly goes after the lost. And you see, what's so baffling to the Pharisees is that Jesus is saying, I am that shepherd who tirelessly goes after the lost sheep. I am that woman who searches and searches for her treasure. He's taking us to the very edge theologically. In the East, the belief is that God is in everything and is everything. In the West, the belief is predominantly that God has used all sorts of matter and kind of put it together to make a form of creation. But it's only the Bible that says that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. He didn't need us. He didn't have to create us. He's not dependent on us in any way. Yet, you would never, ever, ever value something unless you needed it. Unless it was important to you. You see, Jesus is pushing us to the edge because obviously God could not possibly need us in his being. But what it means is that Jesus is saying that we have a God that although he doesn't need us, he values us and he loves us and he seeks after us and he saves us even though he can happily and joyfully go on without us. It's really interesting. There's secularists in the world, like men, uh, there's one man named Carl Sagan, and he says things like this. He says, if there is no God, and he says he believes that, if there is no God, you are utterly insignificant. Everything you do, every deed you do is insignificant. It's programmed. You are a hunk of matter. There's absolutely no rational reason for saying that you're more important than a rock. But, he will say in the end, we still need to live as if we're valuable. But you see, it's unbelievably conflicted. It's incredible. We're almost obsessed in our culture with self-esteem. Schools are obsessed with self-esteem. Tell the kid he's valuable. Tell her she's valuable. Tell them. And yet, we want to teach in the same paradigm with a man like Sagan who says, if there is no God, you have to live as a human being insignificantly, although pretending as though you are significant. Now listen, Christianity does not demand that kind of faith. If you're a secular person today, Christianity will never demand that kind of intellectual schizophrenia. Never. Talk about a leap in the dark. 
If your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, have the guts to admit that your life and everyone else's life is completely insignificant. You can't possibly live as if you're valuable. And other people have value with that kind of worldview. But here we have Jesus saying to those who are sought and to those who are found, there is great value. And Jesus is declaring that those he seeks are of utter value to him. Secularists can't stomach that. Moralism can't stomach that either because it inherently denies the value of humanity. Someone who tries to live and to earn their value before God never understands that Christ is the one who makes us valuable despite ourselves. Do you understand that? We aren't valuable because of what we can do and what we can give. Our value is found in Jesus Christ because he seeks us and finds us and makes us his own. He takes away our sins. He gives us instead his righteousness and he strips us of our dependency upon ourselves and puts us in right standing with the Father. When Isaiah the prophet saw God high and lifted up, he suddenly felt like dirt. You probably know the story. He said, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then what happened? Did God say, but Isaiah, I really love you? No, it's not a general love. Did God say, but Isaiah, I'm seeking you out? No, it's not a general kind of seeking. We see an angel that comes in, grabs a coal from the altar, places it from the the altar of atonement and places it on the lips of Isaiah. And something happens to him in that moment. Because the next moment God comes to Isaiah and says, I have a job for somebody. I need somebody who will become a preacher for 30 years to people who will never listen to me, never give him any approval, never give him any money, never come to question and answer sessions except to throw things. He says, I have a job. I want someone to go and to preach to a people who will never hear, never listen, never approve. And Isaiah jumps up and says, here am I. Send me. What happened? What's going on? In that moment, Isaiah recognized, I'm treasured by God. I know I'm treasured by God. How does he know? Well, here's someone who has the value. Here's someone who finally sees, even though he was a prophet, that he needed atonement because he was running from God in all of his morality. And here is a guy who didn't just hear God loves me in general, but he sees the love of God in the sacrifice. See, Jesus is not just a shepherd. He's in these parables. He's, he is the shepherd. He is this woman seeking the coin. But more than that, he is the lamb who is slain. Jesus Christ came to the earth and on the cross as he was dying, he was seeking down into the mess of humanity. 
And unlike what he does for us, the father doesn't come with a lamp saying, where is my precious, valuable, lost coin? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he got nothing. He got nothing. The father turned out the lights and Jesus sank into the muck of sin. He knew no sin, but he became sin that when he searched and when he went after us and when the hound of heaven was released to bring us to him, that we might become the righteousness of God. Dear friends, if you have a secular worldview, you'll never understand that kind of value. It's impossible. If you're a Pharisee, my friends, listen. If you believe you're trying hard and all God wants you to do is to try harder and harder and as hard as you possibly can and then in the end he might love you, you're not a Christian. No matter how many perfect attendance pins you have, no matter how many times you've been baptized, you're not a Christian, you're a Pharisee. And Christian friends, I want you to hear this too. He's your shepherd. Why does Jesus say, I'm the shepherd and you are the sheep? He doesn't say, I'm the horse trainer and you're the horse. Why? Horses with a tra- without a trainer, they run wild. But sheep without a shepherd die. They die. There aren't herds of wild sheep running free around the world. Sheep need a shepherd. And we come to him when we're in trouble. We have to say, here's my whole life. We have to trust him comprehensively because he's the shepherd who laid down his life. We have to trust in him unconditionally. One shepherd put it this way. It's a horrible experience to go after a sheep. The sheep runs to and fro. It loses direction. And when you finally find it, it's difficult to round it up and bring it home unless you have a dog to scare it. The lost sheep rushes to and fro. And when you find it, you must seize it and cast it down and tie its four legs together and its hind legs together and put it over your shoulders and carry it home. Now that's kind of a sweet picture The shepherd carrying the sheep. I'm a little sheep and Jesus loves me. But did you hear what else he does? He seizes it. He throws it down and he ties it together. Some of you are having trouble in your life because you will not look at your life through this understanding. Because you don't see yourself as a sheep. And if you don't understand yourself to be a sheep... You won't get it. In your mind, you think you know what God should be doing for you. You think you know how things ought to be going in your life. And you just know that you know that if he loved you, he wouldn't be treating you this way. That's because you have a pharisaical worldview. You're working for something. You're not resting in anything. And all of your bitterness and all of your worry is because you won't trust the shepherd. And you refuse to recognize that he values you more than you will ever know. But Christian, Christ died for you. What greater show of love? What more searching must he do? 
what else must He show us that He values us and cares for us and will always, always be our compassionate, loving, saving servant for eternity? Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning. We rejoice in what you have done in the life of your people in building your church. To take people who are just like the tax collectors and sinners, people who love their sin and seek to go their own way in life, to seek for greener pastures, who have zero trust in their shepherd. And Father, yet you have sought us out. You've looked high and low and you have pursued us and found us. And you have tossed us down and bound us up and put us on your shoulders to bring us back. To bring us to salvation. Father, you have valued us so much You valued us like this woman who turned her house upside down to find a single coin. May we understand as your children the great value you place upon our lives. And Father, I pray for those of us who are walking in a moralistic, pharisaical life, who condemn others, Because externally, the things of their life are not consistent with what they see in their own. Father, I pray for the Pharisees in this room, whose hearts are cold, and yet whose deeds are good. May they be brought to a place where they repent of all of their goodness, and that they find their rest in Jesus, the only true, good, and righteous one. And I pray, Father, for those who continue to wander around aimlessly, who wander around lost without a shepherd. Father, capture their hearts, give them new lives in Jesus Christ, and may they find their hope in Christ alone. May they find their joy in Christ alone. May you call them by their name and bring them into your fold that we would be a flock who rejoices with all the angels in heaven over the repentance of one sinner. God, would you do all of this for your glory and that your people would rejoice all the more. We ask all this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.